0: End we know that a more plant-based diet, a plant-centered diet, is the healthiest choice for everyone and also for our planet. So if we um, if we take that together, we should take more, let's say, courageous steps.
1: What a guest we have with us today. We have Wendy wool She is a lecturer at the Amsterdam University of Applied Science on Nutrition and Dietetics. And she was one of the two lead researchers on a recently completed study on the impact of a plant-based diet for rheumatoid arthritis patients called the Plants for Joints study conducted in the Netherlands. It's super exciting to have her with us. G'day, Wendy.
0: Hi, Clint. It's so awesome to be here with you today. Thank you.
1: Wendy, you are going to share with us all of the findings from this study. You're going to share with us how it came about, what it means for the plant-based community, what you've found, how it contributes to the body of evidence with regards to diet and rheumatoid arthritis, and maybe sort of put some of these questions to rest about what we should actually be eating. We're going to talk about how this study differs from the Patterson program, and we're going to talk about what's next for you and your research team. But first of all, tell us what did you what did the study look like, and what were the results?
0: Well, Clint, uh, the most important result was that um, disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis um, decreased for uh, people who did the program. And it decreased with uh, an decrease was comparable with what we usually see in medication studies. So that is a huge positive effect. Uh, and we were, of course, um, yeah, we were so um enthusiastic about uh, about this result. It's a, a big step forward. Um, in the evidence, which is already quite large for in favor of plant-based diets, and it's also the first study uh, in which we did not only do a diet, but we compared it. We included in this program also uh, physical activity and stress management. Yeah, it was um, uh, a beautiful result. And the reason we chose this uh, multidisciplinary approach of not only diet, but also uh, physical activity and stress management was that um, one of the uh, previous studies, um, a study you also uh, often mention, uh, the trial which was done in Norway, uh, in which people were put on a fasting diet of one week and after that were placed on a um, uh, Plant-based diet for almost a year, and one of the uh, professors in our team said, "Well, that is quite interesting, and the and the results uh, are uh, impressive." It's also worth notifying that many rheumatologists don't know anything about that study, which is a large study published in the Lancet, and uh, it was done in the in the eighties. And it was done at the same time that, uh, let's say the more effective medication uh, was introduced in the market. And so we have the impression that it was a little bit forgotten because of this development of uh, effective uh, DMARTs, uh, the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. And uh, But the effect of that study was also impressive. But if you take a closer look, then you see that the disease activity in that Norwegian study was quite high. People had high inflammation, a lot of pain. And of course, the situation now is different. Fortunately, I mean, uh, I'm very much for lifestyle and diet, but it is also fortunate that we have drugs that can help or support us and actually what we see now is that the disease activity in most people with rheumatoid arthritis is in a lower range than in those uh, in in that time so what you see for example also in our study is that for example the esr so the uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate a marker for inflammation it lowered in our study but that was not significant, uh, but, uh, and this has not been published yet, we also have one-year data. And what we did in our study is after the randomized controlled trial of four months, we followed all the participants in the study for another two years, and we now have the one-year data. And in the one-year data, you actually see that disease activity remains low, so that is very, very nice to see. But also that the uh, ESR, so that inflammation marker uh, that started to decrease within the trial, decreased further. And if you compare one-year data with the baseline data, you actually see uh, a significant uh, decrease uh, of inflammation. So that is very nice. But the difference between the 80s and now is that the the decrease in disease activity, decrease in inflammation is lower because we are already on a lower level. So, and the reason why uh, this uh, professor told us, why can't you uh, also add physical activity and stress management? uh, The reason for that was that he said, well, those effects in a Norwegian study are perfect, however, taking into account that disease activity now is lower, perhaps you should do more than just diet to make sure that they come even lower. And that is why uh, we we uh, uh, did a, um, a pre pre-study to see what other things can we do, and of course we could we could have done a step, let's say further into diet which is actually the Patterson program that takes diet, let's say, a a step deeper. But we chose physical activity because physical activity is already in, let's say, the general recommendation of uh, the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and stress. And that was a very personal one, uh, stress, because one of the things that uh, impressed me personally most In all the things that I looked out, uh, looked up um, before starting this study, which is my PhD uh, project, I hope to get my PhD this year for this project. But what I saw was actually that people who have an extreme form of stress, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, have an up to twice uh, the risk of uh, developing rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. yeah, uh, that, that really shocked me. And uh, when I discussed this with uh, other researchers, they also said, well, this is quite impressive. And uh, and then we decided to cooperate with colleagues from uh, the Faculty of Psychology, uh, also in the Netherlands. And, and they actually were doing already quite some studies with people um, having rheumatoid arthritis. And then we said, okay, let's put this together also because we have noticed in let's say the general treatment of common diseases that there is a great need for evidence regarding multidisciplinary programs so that was the uh, the reason why we said okay let's combine these three elements into one program well that was actually yeah the 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 basis of our study, and that was also influenced by studies done by Dean Ornish, and uh, Dean Ornish is, um, I would say, one of the founding fathers of lifestyle uh, medicine because he also, in the eighties, did the first um, multidisciplinary uh, lifestyle trial uh, for uh, the um, for people with heart disease. And as we know, people with RA have a twice uh, the risk of um, twice as high risk of uh, developing heart disease. So we said, well, there we see things coming together because the program of Dean Ornish uh, is also a whole food plant-based diet combined with physical activity and stress management and um, and that program that Ornish program is actually so was so successful in lowering uh, the risk of heart disease and actually reversing heart disease uh, that uh, all the large uh, health insurance companies in the US now uh, refund this quite expensive program so that those yeah let's say previous studies influenced us To do this. And of course, you yourself, because Clint, we had a meeting, I think it was five years ago when I was building up this protocol. And um, I actually had a couple of patients uh, that we uh, knew from our rheumatology clinic, because I also work in a rheumatology clinic in Amsterdam where we have conducted this study. And in our clinic, uh, but also um, I came across them also through social media, we had patients who were following your program and were very successful. And so uh, they inspired us as well. So your pro- program actually inspired us as well to uh, yeah, to implement this in this way.
1: Mm, that is That's so wonderful to hear. And I remember... When we had our conversation, I was living in Florida. It was 2018. In fact, it was almost five years ago exactly to within about two weeks from now. And it was exciting to hear about what you had planned. And we had a great conversation uh, about all of the nuances about the diet. And we did talk lifestyle. And it was really, really, uh, really, really great. And then now, five years later, here we are. And you've put it all together. You've manifested it. You made it happen. And it's really cool to now um, sit and talk about this publicly and share your results. So, thank you for all that. Is there a way that we could almost do like a, um, a like imagine a comparison table in your mind of the control result and the plants for joints result? Could we could we say that disease activity score DAS uh, twenty eight is it? improved in plants for joints versus the control. I know medications were reduced in more patients who were uh, following plants for joints. Would you be able to just uh, rattle off a couple of comparison data
0: like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll I'll take a peek uh, for myself um, uh, because I have them in front of me over here. Um, first of all, uh, the setup of the study. It might be uh, interesting to know that we had a randomized controlled trial. So people who entered the study uh, were um, uh, randomized to the intervention group, which was which was the plans for joints group, or the control group. And people who could join this study had a uh, let's say average uh, to low disease activity. So not too, uh, not too high, because that would be, let's say, irresponsible, uh, and not too low, because if people are too low, you cannot measure any improvement. So it was a low to average uh, disease activity of around 3.9. So the DES-28, which is the disease activity score based on 28 joints. So it is a score which is set up of Painful joints, swollen joints, your own score of let's say perceived health and then the this ESR, this inflammation marker and it's in a score. and people could join between 2.9 and 3, uh, 5.1 and so the average was 3.9. And the let's say the, the, the aim of uh, the treatment um, uh, for people with RA, is to get it below 2.6. That is the aim. And within the intervention group, we uh, started out uh, with 3.9, and then uh, the patients went to 2.9. So that's a whole point difference, which is large, which as I said before, our results are comparable with drugs. So uh, one, one point difference, And in the control group they started at 3.8 and it remained at 3.8 so and in both groups we had uh, of course people with and without medication Um, but um, to be able to join this study your medication if you had medication it had to be three months stable because as you know uh, medication for rheumatoid arthritis can um, the effects can be somewhat delayed Uh, so you want people to be stable before they start. And the aim was to leave the medication as it was at baseline throughout the whole study, uh, which was not possible for some people. Only a small group changed medication. But on average, more people lowered medication because of side effects, for, for example, in the intervention group than in the control group. And as I mentioned in the one-year extension, so the two-year extension study that we set up, the protocol for that study was that people that we had a standardized, standardized tapering screen scheme to lower medication even further. and indeed, the one-year data shows show that people on the program were able to lower medication even further. So uh, while remaining lower lower in the disease activity. Uh, so that is awesome. So what we did was um, we had these two groups and to be able to, let's say, to convince people to join this study, although be, uh, being part of the control group, we told them, well, if you join and if you are, let's say, uh, randomized to uh, the control group, you will be our control for four months. And so you'll have to undergo all kinds of measurements. And we had many, many, many uh, measurements. I I feel really guilty about all the measurements we did and all these great people that came every time again to our clinic to for scanning, for delivering their poops, because we did a microbiome study as well, to... Uh, give blood and stuff like that. So that was really awesome. I really have to thank, thank all the participants. Um, but um, the control group, so after four months being control, they received the program as well. And that was actually the, let's say the thank you that we gave them, but all these people joined the two year extension uh, study. So we have quite some people in that study, just to give you an idea. We had 40 people in the intervention group, 37 in the control group, and so 77 people who finished the study and who did the whole program and are now in finishing this two-year extension study and from whom we already have the one-year data. So that is about disease activity. So then next um, is, for example, um, besides uh, ESR as an inflammation marker, we also had CRP, C-reactive pro- protein, which is also a very known uh, inflammation marker. And most rheumatologists use either ESR or CRP, so we measured them both. And actually, people in the intervention group um, started at 4.3, which I would say is a low-grade inflammation and they went down to 3.8, so they lowered. And in the control group, they started at 3.4 and went up to 4.8, but the difference was not significant. Interestingly enough, in our osteoarthritis trial, which we will discuss in a a, a later uh, time, but uh, in the osteoarthritis, trial, we did saw a decrease, a significant decrease in CRP. So it's a little bit, sometimes it hits significance and sometimes no, but overall you can see that the tendency is that objective inflammation markers are going down.
1: Yeah, I'm going to, let's just place a little footnote there to come back to this because the word significance here has a very unique definition within the jargon of scientific publication. So let's come back to that if you uh, have a couple of other bullet points and then I'll ask you about that.
0: Yeah, that is great. Uh, Then um, uh, I will go through uh, some uh, other, let's say, anthropometric, so body composition uh, markers. Uh, People, of course, lost weight. The people um, on average had a BMI of 26 when they started. So uh, we know uh, BMI, body mass index, should be around 20, 25 to be healthy. As of 25, you're a little bit overweight and as of 30, you're obese. So the people who were joining this study had a relatively healthy weight. 26 is a little bit overweight, but not too much. And of course that went down. So they lost on average, the intervention group lost, uh, they started at uh, with a mean weight of let's say 77 and they went down to 73. Uh, so that's quite something. uh, And in the intervention group, they started at 72 kilograms and they remained at 72 kilograms. And most of the weight loss was fat mass. Uh, and people lost um, a little bit of uh, uh, muscle mass, uh, but uh, one of my co-promoters, so one of the professors involved, was a professor is a professor specialised in uh, body composition. So he knows all about protein and body composition and uh, and muscle mass, and he actually said that the um, uh, the loss of lean mass was very 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 low when you uh, take into account that people of course ate, ate a little bit less protein so that is also an interesting uh, thing and that is also one of the reasons why i would not include people who are uh, who have a very high disease activity without any additional attention into a program like this, because if you are high on inflammation, so if your disease activity is very high, and you're not treated for that, and you are converting to a plant-based diet, then most probably your protein intake will go down. And this can uh, affect your uh, your muscle mass because if you are in a high inflammatory state, you're catabolic, so your your muscle mass is going down. And if you're also um, decreasing protein intake, this can accelerate a little bit too much. So, uh, but if you are um, if your disease activity is in let's say a manageable uh, range, then you can perfectly come down with a little bit uh, of protein. Uh, That's not not a problem uh, at all, but it is an important thing to take into account to, let's say on a, if you're doing this for a longer period of time, I would really recommend to to really focus on the legumes to take your uh, protein. And then um, we also measured, for example, uh, bone mineral mass because we, Uh, We did DEXA scans, and the DEXA scans are, we use them mainly to measure fat mass and muscle mass, but it also measures bone mineral density. And within the four months, it didn't do anything at all, which is, of course, because that goes very slow. So very curious. I don't, I have not analyzed that yet, but what it does on a one year uh, duration. Then some metabolic markers. Um, So then we are talking about glucose, uh, cholesterol, and stuff like that. Uh, Well, there you can see that uh, this type of uh, lifestyle programs are effective for people with diabetes, for people who have prediabetes or or a high risk of diabetes, or people who who have a high risk of uh, heart disease. For example people with uh high ldl so that's the let's say the bad cholesterol because both glucose as well as ldl really um went down uh again significantly so uh, statistically significant also what i forgot in the body composition what also went down was the waist circumference <laughs> which more often is uh, let's say uh, mentioned as an even Im- more important marker for health than BMI, the body mass index, and also uh, yeah, waist circumference went down significantly. So um, yeah,
1: wow! If that if that checklist were the only uh, reasons to consider going on a plant based diet, you would jump at it, wouldn't you? It's pretty comprehensive.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and that is also the difficulty with um, scientific studies. Uh, when you do a scientific study on lifestyle programs, um, you have to take into account that in scientific studies you have to choose one primary outcome. So, for example, in our case, this was this Dust Twenty Eight, so the disease activity. Activity score. You have to choose one, and why is that? And then we come also on the significance. Uh, thing. Um, of course, if you if you analyze all these data, you uh, use statistical met- methods to see whether uh, the let's say the improvements are really uh, real are real improvements and not let's say. Uh, chance findings because if you throw your dice uh and you say uh if I do it like this, then I can throw six, then of course you also have the chance that you throw six by coincidence and um significance explains that uh the let's say the odds that it was a chance finding so a coincidence is less than 5%. Actually for the DAS, it's less than 0.0001%. So we can say that the outcome regarding disease activity is it's a really, really, really um, uh, hard outcome. And it is really no coincidence that people improved. However, if you have several outcomes, the more outcomes you have, the more chance you will have to find a significant outcome. So the more outcomes you have, uh, let's say the the, the lower your statistical, your uh, strength is. And that is why um, uh, we only, uh, let's say, analyze for significance for that primary outcome. The, the difficult thing is however, that if you look at lifestyle, the thing is that the outcome, uh, which is quite large in our case, but more, more often the outcome is not that large, but it is positive for many outcomes. Like in this case, you see positive outcomes for the disease activity, for weight, for uh, fat mass, for glucose, for LDL, it's typical, uh, that's a typical outcome for a lifestyle-related intervention. Whereas as you look at uh, drugs, for example, then you can, uh, drugs are often focused on one molecule and uh, that lowers and has a primary outcome, but all the other things will not improve. Even worse, sometimes there will be uh, harmful side effects often so um, that is that is the difficulty uh, in in uh, performing a lifestyle uh, lifestyle trial mm.
1: based on what you have researched prior to this study and now the results of your study, uh, do you feel that this conclusively indicates that everyone with rheumatoid arthritis should be eating a plant-based diet?
0: I would not say everyone, because like with um, uh, with drugs, there are always some people who don't react. Uh, in our study, the um, I'd say the positive uh, outcome was, first of all, that the mean decrease of disease activity was large, The spread was low, so people on average, almost all decreased in disease activity and some people remained stable. So almost nobody increased in disease activity. So that is the first thing I want to say. Then the second thing is that um, with diet, you have, of course, um, the fact that in most Western countries, we have dietary guidelines and the dietary guidelines, uh, food pyramids, um, uh, healthy eating plates, stuff like that. We have them in the Netherlands and our intervention was based on that because we wanted to um, also give doctors uh, a sense of safety. And uh, because those dietary guidelines are often well studied and take into account also, for example, potential nutritional deficiencies and stuff like that. Uh, If you uh, depart from that idea, uh, a plant-based diet can be fortunately less and less, but still can be perceived as extreme. So, um, if you look, we discussed earlier uh, the, the the guidelines from the international uh, rheumatology associations, and yeah, they because,
1: because we discussed those before we hit record. Yeah. Uh, can you just uh, tell us what you're talking about there, and then continue on.
0: Yeah, so um, the rheumatologists internationally agree that we should uh, perhaps adopt a Mediterranean-like diet if we have rheumatoid arthritis, which is already uh, great. I mean, I'm already glad that they say something about diet. That's a new thing.
1: Let's step step back and say this is all brand new. Uh, They're about to release guidelines for the first time on lifestyle within the American Uh, guidelines of rheumatology. So, a new phase is happening within the rheumatology conventional traditional medicine world, which is they're bringing forth recommendations around exercise, uh, diet, supplementation, so on. So, it's all new, it's coming out soon. So, but what Wendy and I were discussing just prior to this call is that why have they chosen a Mediterranean diet when all the evidence that I can find supports better results with a plant-based diet. And that's even prior to Wendy's study. So I'm going to, let's discuss this.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, as I said, these dietary guidelines are, let's say many of them um, are based on studies involving a Mediterranean diet and are influenced by Mediterranean diets. So that is the first thing. So that is a safe option. That's the first thing. Second thing is that uh, there, has, there has been a, a very nice study done on the Mediterranean diet, uh, which showed a uh, also a significant decrease in um, disease activity. Um, so that study was done. So you could conclude that a Mediterranean diet is already a, a step forward and it is safe. Whereas plant-based diets, um, when they develop These guidelines, indeed, my study was not published yet. And there are two other studies, one done uh, in the U.S. by Neil Bernard and the other one done in uh, Germany by Andreas Michalse and his colleagues. And um, these three studies of us came out after these uh, guidelines were conceptualized and actually I know that some researchers including uh, a colleague of mine Caroline Wagner who also was one of the co-authors my my colleague on on this uh, study uh, they are now thinking of performing a new review and reviews good literature reviews based on previously done studies have a let's say high level of evidence and can be used in the future to develop guidelines. So it's very important that our studies are first published and second, that they are reviewed. So I'm hopeful that uh, this is the first step. Mediterranean diet is already a good idea for many um, and that we uh, from here will take it forward. Also because many dietary guidelines, for example, in the Netherlands, as well as in Canada, for example, already very clearly say a more plant-based diet is very healthy for us all. So, I mean, a a Mediterranean diet, uh, of course, there is some, let's say, confusion about what is really a Mediterranean diet. But if you look into the study done uh, on rheumatoid arthritis, for example, it is a Mediterranean diet like they ate it on Crete in the 50s. Which was really an almost plant-based diet, uh, very rich in legumes, in uh, whole uh, whole uh, whole foods, and uh, very very little animal-based foods. So um, I think I think it's important to take that into account as well. Also, uh, we often think that Mediterranean diets are very rich in fish, which sometimes they can be. You see a little bit more fish in Mediterranean diet. And of course, the fats of fatty fish um, contain very healthy omega-3 fatty acids. However, the fish of the fifties is not any longer the fish that we consume right now. uh, Because um, unfortunately, Fish and especially the fats in fish are very much contaminated with uh, heavy metals, with PCBs, with plastics and stuff like that. So also we in our rheumatology clinic, uh, we started actually quite positive about fish because of those omega-3 fatty acids. And we actually said to our participants, if you really want your fish, if you are done with this study, you can include it. But right now, I, I, I actually there was a study done, for example, in Belgium, uh, in which they concluded that fish makes up two percent of our uh, of our diet, but it is uh, largely responsible for all the contaminations we we get into our bodies uh, through food. So uh, I think that uh, we have to be a bit cautious with, with fish in general. And if you uh, do eat fish, please make sure you eat very small fish because those uh, contaminants, they build up in the, in the fats of fish and in large fish, relatively, You'll find more of those contaminants.
1: Yeah, and you you're also, in addition to that, uh, published another study. I can see on your website just to, just last year um, about the uh, lack of association between saturated fatty acid and non-communicable diseases. This ties into a fish discussion as well because they're so rich in saturated fat. And whilst I don't want to get too much off our topic here, uh, maybe just speak to that just really briefly about fish, saturated fat, and associated disease risks?
0: Yeah, well, in general, um, actually, in, in fact, that article you mentioned was a response to a horrifying article published by some researchers who, on the basis of very bad data, concluded that saturated fat was actually not of a not so, so much of a problem. And uh, my colleagues and I we could not accept this, so we wrote this uh, commentary in which we explain that saturated fat really is an issue, and especially for people with inflammatory arthritis because they already have this. Increased risk of um, of heart disease, so they should really be very very careful with building up saturated fat. And um, I think if you look into the results of our study, we of course also asked our participants to keep food diaries. And the fun thing about uh, our outcomes is that actually. Uh, i think my participants uh clint are not that adherent to my so i'm i am i am afraid i'm less convincing than you are because if i talk to your uh the pay, people in your program i'm always surprised about how perfectly well they are keeping uh let's say the the the, the they are they are following your guidelines and whereas the people in my study um uh, very often said, well, but sometimes I'm eating an egg and sometimes I'm eating a fish. And But the fun part was, that then on average, the people who adhered best, we, we divided them in four groups. So the people who did worst in adhering to, uh, let's say the guidelines of our program and the people who did best. And actually the third group had the best outcomes. And I, I thought that very funny because this means that actually if you are too much, let's say, if you are going too much for perfection, that might involve, I think that's my explanation, that might involve some stress, which is not very good for you. Whereas the people who are, who are a little bit more relaxed and say, I'm, I'm going for it, but I'm not perfect, So once in a while, I'll eat, for example, uh, I'll eat out and I'll I'll have uh, something that is not perfectly within the guidelines of the program, but I'll I'll enjoy it. They also did very, very well. So that is first. Uh, To come back to the saturated fat part, um, we actually advise them to uh, eat a whole food plant-based diet, to eat as the least- uh processed foods possible to abstain as much as possible from uh fatty acids in the form of butter but also the the plant-based um uh variants uh which are uh palm palm oil how do you call it in uh
1: palm palm oil
0: palm, Co- coconut, coconut oil yeah especially and um and we also because uh, we did found some associations between uh, omega-6 uh, fatty acids and arthritis. And so we said, if you are using oil, don't use too much and keep it to olive oil because olive oil has omega-9 fatty acids mostly. And uh, those are, uh, let's say, associated with lower inflammation. So But uh, I do think that saturated fatty acids, not only, let's say in general, I would really say if you have uh, no arthritis, you should uh, lower your intake of saturated fatty acids. And if you have inflammatory arthritis, you should especially lower uh, saturated fatty acids. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Let's get on to... um your colleague who worked on this project with you. He's a rheumatologist. I want to learn about him, his career. Um, Has he been treating people with, uh, sorry, uh, the Patterson program folks over the years because there's been whispers and discussions over many years of patients in the Netherlands who have this fabulous rheumatologist who supports our program. And it's like, It's just never filtered clearly through to me who that is and if that is the same doctor and how this all ties together. Could you help us with that?
0: Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, uh, just a small story. Um, uh, I'm actually an economist and I worked in banking for 15 years and only studied dietetics when I was 30. I started it when I was 39. And um, and because I was already, let's say, um, influenced by this idea that uh, perhaps a more plant-based diet can help you um, live longer and especially live uh, to, to uh, expand your, um, your healthy uh, longevity. And this was important for me because my husband, who I love very much, is a little bit older than I am. So I thought, oh, my God, this is interesting for me because, of course, I want him to reach a very old age in, in great health. So that was my personal, let's say, a journey into dietetics, a lifestyle, and especially this plant-based lifestyle, which is also recommended from this Blue Zone uh, perspective, and the blue zones, as you may know, are the five regions in which um, let's say the odds of uh, becoming a centenarian are ten times higher than, for example, in the US uh, in the United States. So that was my start. And so I studied dietetics, and then I started as a uh, clinical dietitian in the university hospital, and I had my own practice. And then a great friend of ours who has rheumatoid arthritis said, hey, Wendy, um, perhaps you should contact my rheumatologist because he now is telling me that I have to adopt a vegan diet as well. And I said, oh, wow, I I need to talk with him. So his name is Dirk-Jan van Schardenburg. And he's the last author of our uh, article. And that is because he is actually, uh, he's my boss. And he is the one who, um, with him together, I I developed this program. And I uh, sent him an email. And I, because I noticed that he just said to people, well, perhaps you can try a vegan diet. And then I wrote him and I said, well, interesting. And, and and are they doing that? And then he said, well, perhaps you should come over. And then I came over and he said, well, strangely enough, they're not listening to me. <laughs> and he said, well, welcome. Welcome to the world of behavioral change. Um <laughs> It was so funny and because he is a person like that, if you tell him, there come this is more healthy and you can prove it with evidence, he just, he's the person who does it. And uh, I mean, disciplined as, as to the max. And, um, and actually uh, we were talking about this and he said, well, uh, this is very interesting and perhaps we should work together. And then we developed uh, this idea and uh, so uh, that's him. It's Dirk Jan van Schaardenburg and he's a professor at the Amsterdam Medical uh, University Medical Center, and he is uh, one of the rheumatologists at Reade, which is a rheumatology clinic in the Netherlands. Um, where when I started together with Dirk Jan, the 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 rheumatologists and the researchers, because. This clinic works very closely together with the Amsterdam University Medical Center, where I'm a PhD student, and um, and they were they they are among the best researchers professors in the field, and and on the one at the one hand it was fortunate that I could work and develop this this uh, this uh, study in this highly Um, let's say, yeah, great scientific environment. On the other hand, they made my life really, really difficult because the first time I wanted to do a presentation on fasting for rheumatoid arthritis, for example, there were rheumatologists who said, do I really have to listen to this nonsense? I mean, how alternative and how unscientific is this? And so I really um, had to work my ass off to convince them that there are studies proving that indeed uh, fasting decreases your objectively measured uh, inflammatory markers and stuff like that. So that was a huge challenge. And but the, the great thing is they're really scientific because now, they are, I mean, they are the best rheumatologists we have in the Netherlands, because they are, I think that this study has helped them to become more holistic. Some of them, of course, already were, I mean, there are everywhere, there are rheumatologists who who really understand the relationship between um, arthritis and stress and lack of sleep and uh, physical activity and unhealthy food, uh, dietary habits. So there there are uh, great rheumatologists everywhere, but I think within the Netherlands, this clinic is really outstanding nowadays. And they have, because we also have a rehabilitation uh, department and throughout the whole clinic, we now have adopted a more plant-based diet also in the clinic. So people are offered also when they are in the hospital they are offered a mostly pan based diet uh, in our restaurants uh, there are all kinds of healthy options our employees are having uh, are, are are stimulated to eat more healthily so it's really a great example of how things can change within let's say 5 to 10 years yeah
1: wow isn't that fantastic so um, I learned from Dr. Greger and uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn recently when we did a conference and they were guest speakers that I interviewed um, in Melbourne just uh, just last month, that the Canadian guidelines appear to the, be the most progressive in terms of recommendations of plant-based diets on a national scale. But I'm picking up from you that the Netherlands might not be too far behind.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. Canada is very, very uh, advanced in that in that sense. Um, I think in the Netherlands we have taken a great leap as well. I'm working also uh, in all kinds of let's say associations for doctors and and nutritionists, and to uh, really implement that even further. And the interesting thing is that in the end we know that a more plant-based diet, a plant-centered diet is the healthiest choice for everyone and also for our planet. So if we um, if we take that together, we should take more, let's say, courageous steps, especially also um, uh, in our hospitals, in our healthcare environments, because for example, in the Netherlands, and I know in a lot of Western countries, it's like this. I mean, healthcare is challenged to the max. We have way too many diseased people. Approximately 60% of people in affluent countries are sick. 60%, I mean, that that is horrifying. If you look at, for example, osteoarthritis, In the Netherlands, one out of 10 inhabitants have osteoarthritis. And it's the fastest growing disease uh, in the Netherlands. And it's the same way in many other Western countries. Uh, One of my colleagues um, who is working on a more, let's say, plant based food environment in the Netherlands, uh, he is an orthopedic surgeon, and and he says, I stopped because I cannot handle this anymore. I have to replace knees and hips all the time. And all the time I'm saying to people, you have to improve your diet. You have to improve your lifestyle. And he said, this one-to-one, I mean, I cannot, I cannot do any, anything further. So we have to upscale this. We have to convince the world that we cannot go on like this. We are killing ourselves and we are killing our planet.
1: Um, Well said, well said. Um, uh, Backtracking a little bit, I know I'm going to get a lot of questions. Can people in the Netherlands contact that rheumatologist? He's going to become very sought after. Uh, Is that possible?
0: Well, he is actually retiring in May, so very sorry about that. But if you are in the Netherlands and if you are... Looking for let's say a clinic that is more uh, into diet, then you can uh, certainly look up Reade.nl. So Reade R E A D E dot nl, which is the clinic uh, we have conducted this study, and who ha- we have a lot of lifestyle-minded rheumatologists over there. So that is a great clinic. I know there are several other, because there are, for example, also studies in the Netherlands now, let's say more pragmatic studies uh, done on uh, a Mediterranean diet that is more, let's say, plant-based as well. And these are done in several other clinics. So to my opinion, uh, if you are looking for a rheumatologist, I mean, Often, I, I know, fortunately, of some uh, patients who were dismissed by their rheumatologist. Some people who did your program were dismissed by their rheumatologist. So, but often you will have a very long-term relationship with your rheumatologist. So, I would really recommend to to really um, select one that fits your needs needs. And it doesn't always have to be a rheumatologist that knows everything about food. I mean, I know one rheumatologist, for example, who is very positive, but he says, I'm not the expert in that field. I support it. Uh, I I fully support it. And, uh, but I'm uh, specialized in medication and other treatments and uh, and my patients are very much at home with him. As well, because uh, because he is supportive, but he also knows his limitation, and I really appreciate that as well. And yeah, we that's
1: perfectly fine. Yeah,
0: we ha- actually have um, a growing number of dietitians in the Netherlands who are, let's say, um, familiar with uh, this program. And actually, if you are looking internationally for. Um, healthcare providers, including dietitians, who support this. I really recommend you to take a look on the website of the Physicians Association for Nutrition. I'm uh, in the board of the Dutch um, Association, and I'm also working a lot with my colleagues in uh, the Physicians Association for Nutrition on the international level. Actually, We're even talking about cooperation with our program. So um, please go to the website of of, uh, this uh, association, which is pan-int.org. I mean, perhaps we can put that link in your show notes. Um, I think that is an international website where you can find some information. Actually, uh, I wrote a general... Information about rheumatoid arthritis and nutrition on that website, uh, which has to be updated since we published uh, our our results now. But that gives quite some, uh, let's say, general uh, information.
1: Absolutely fantastic! You're doing so such great things, and uh, it's great to see the parallels. We talked at the start about the differences and the overlap between Patterson program and your study. Um, and I think we'll just talk about this, and then I only have one or two more questions for you, and we'll wrap this up. But I think one of the th- there's a couple of areas where the study is not as stringent as the Patterson program, which is the no oils. Obviously, there was an there was some occasional grazing into the eggs and some other things. Um, there was no restriction on fat intake, and whilst there's not an overt restriction in the Patterson program, we have a guideline of reintroduction sequence that tends to be slowly increasing with calorie density. And that's very deliberate. If there was one thing uh, that overarched the general progression of foods, it's that we're starting with lots of polyphenols from fruits and spices, and we're moving, increasing the fat content, right? So that's pretty much the general trend. Um, And then, of course, uh, food sensitivities, which is a big one, which is why people- Jump onto ridiculous diets like carnivore and paleo and so on, and sometimes get relief immediately. Is because it's not that the meat in those plans are good for them or helpful or anti-inflammatory even. It's that they're burning island situation that they're on. They're jumping off onto anything that's an elimination diet, and if it's a processed food situation or a dairy situation, um, then often. Uh, they can, you know, immediately see relief because they're not triggering those food sensitivities. Uh, And so what we, of course, do in our program, everyone who who follows it understands this very well, is we reduce the plant-based foods too to become an elimination diet. And then we slowly increase plants to increase gut bacteria diversity and to slowly reintroduce foods to also then acclimatize to those foods and reduce food sensitivities. So. There are some things there that, um, that would be interesting to explore uh, if there's further data. I know you've got some, some more data in there or potentially another study in the future, a collaboration. Uh, I can certainly help you recruit uh, for that. We, uh, we, we could uh, look into that. But people who've asked me in the past and said, why don't you do a study? and I've been asked that question maybe 100 to 200 times over the years. I believe the evidence is strong enough. Look at the work that you've put in. Look at the collaboration you've worked with. It's a huge amount of work. And I can now just say, look what Wendy has done. Because that is like, I want to say maybe like an even an easier version of what I'm suggesting. And look at the results. We don't need another. We don't need to go over this yet again, in my view
0: yeah well first of all about the food sensitivities um we wanted to do a program that was also let's say um easy to understand for all layers in society um uh, so we deliberately said we understand that there are some food sensitivities We uh, had some participants who said, I'm reacting very much, for example, on gluten. They could, uh, we we guided them to do this without the gluten. So that's, we adapted it sometimes on a a personal level, but not too much. And, um, but we decided this already, uh, like you said, we believe that this already does so much. And indeed, sometimes you see people who have done this and say, I want to take it a step further. And actually, I I send them to you because that is one step further. And so that is uh, that is okay. I do believe that there is an explanation for the food sensitivities. And this is very much still in a hypo, uh, hypothetical, um, let's say level. But what we also did, all the people who joined this study, we also collected uh, feces, so the poops. (laughs) And we uh, put them in the freezer at minus 80 degrees Celsius. And they actually were sent a couple of weeks ago to Germany because in Germany, uh, we have great researchers, great colleagues, and they uh, are specialized in microbiome metabolites, and they are uh, now studying our uh, our poops, our microbiomes, and the metabolites. And metabolites, that's perhaps interesting to explain. You have a microbiome, so you have your gut bacteria, um, which is in your poop, uh, and your gut bacteria consists of good, good bacteria, bad bacteria, and the good ones actually um, release anti-inflammatory substances. And uh, these are metabolites. And what we saw in our participants was, if you look at the, let's say the diet, uh, we were able to decrease saturated fat intake significantly, really uh, was a big step uh, lower and increase fiber intake hugely. So people, went from quite a low intake of fibers to a very high level of, uh, of fiber, which was a challenge first, because as your listeners uh, certainly will understand is that this goes with some bloating, with some uh, inter- intestinal uh, complaints, but most often these are temporary. And so with some adaptations or, for example, soaking legumes somewhat longer or adding some baking soda or uh, lowering it first to increase it later, um, we were able to, to manage this all. And But in the end, people, the intake of fiber was increased uh, to a very high level. So what we think will happen is that the microbiome uh, I'm convinced it's improved. I, I, I guess that is the outcome. We still have to study that, but let's say if our uh, expectations come true, then uh, it's uh, improved. And we think that that also increased metabolites. So, and that has a, perhaps that is for a part responsible for the longer term, slowly decreasing Uh, level of inflammation. That is what I think. And I also think that um, the food sensitivities are related to the microbiome. We know that the microbiome of people with rheumatoid arthritis is really different from people who don't have rheumatoid arthritis. And um, of course, for example, I was discussing this with one of the, one of uh, a top, Researcher in uh, the microbiome field, and I explained to him that some of our participants, if they eat red meat, they have an inflammation or a, let's say, a flare within twenty four hours. Yeah. That's really, really remarkable. and And he actually said it could be that um because those people, they did very well on on this uh, program. So he said most probably they are doing well but their microbiome is still not let's say optimized and mm-hmm. so their microbiome as soon as they get let's say food for the let's say the 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 more pathogenic the the the, the let's say the worse uh, bacteria then you'll see that their complaints increase
1: Yeah Yeah, absolutely. Also, in addition to that, uh, I I believe this, you know, even when we are in a state of balance in the early stages of gut restoration, we still have a degree of gut permeability. And that gut permeability still allows the cross-pollinization of the lipopolysaccharide endotoxin into the bloodstream in the presence of a high-fat environment. Yep. So this is why it can happen very quickly in my view, is because uh, you've still got the holes in the in the tube, right? If you're running the tap, the garden hose still has some holes in it that can that can uh create problems and uh and those holes can do can migrate this uh this endotoxin more easily in the presence of high fat. Yep. so that's another theory.
0: Yeah, well, actually, we hope, uh, we are not sure yet if they are able to research it, but we hope that they are able, that the, these researchers in Germany, that they are able to also give us some clues uh, based on, the, let's say, the, the material we send them to give us some clues about the gut permeability. permeability.
1: Yeah. Yep. great. To wrap this up. Do you think this also can work for other autoimmune inflammatory arthritic conditions besides RA?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of our uh, in, yeah inspirations was actually the Dean Ornish program, uh, the, pro- the program developed by uh, Dean Ornish in the 80s to treat uh, heart disease. So I think we could say has been already uh, sufficiently proven as an effective intervention for that um, target group. I think the studies done by New Bernard on diabetes are also very convincing. So I definitely uh, recommend this program also for uh, people uh, with, let's say, a um, not a very advanced type 2 diabetes, but in the early stages of diabetes, And I think this is also a very interesting one as a secondary prevention for cancer. That still has to be studied, but I think it has all the ingredients, uh, stress, physical activity. If you look at the recommendations of the World Cancer Research Fund, and they have a great overview of all the studies done in cancer, they actually say lower your intake of uh, red meat. Uh, increase your intake of vegetables and fruits it it all comes out on uh in the same uh in in, in the same corner so uh we actually have um the plans to uh, uh to take to transfer plans for joints to plans for health and and yeah try to offer this as a let's say broad uh, lifestyle program which really pits the most important uh, diseases of affluence.
1: Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm hoping we can reconvene and have another one of these interviews when you have uh, released your data for the osteoarthritis study that you've also done. Uh, Would you be kind enough to do another interview with me when those results are published?
0: Well, Clint, uh, not only uh, do another interview, I think we have to be very, very much connected because we are working in the same field with the same patients. And, and I think we can really um, together make sure that a lot of people can be uh, helped uh, to, to uh, take their health a step forward.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Well, let's work on those uh, initiatives. Let's work together in whatever ideas you might have, or I might come up with, because you're absolutely right. There's so much overlap with not just the dietary recommendations, but our mission. Uh, So uh, I'd love to explore that further. And I'd love to have you back when we talk about that study, osteoarthritis. Of course, you get that for free when you've got rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and so all of the data around that very much applies to us as well. Can't wait to have you back. Congratulations on all that you've done with this study, all the work that you've put in. It's enormous. And that 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 team of people that you've now got around you who are all working together to spread this, um, especially within the arthritis community, it means so much to all of us as patients of rheumatoid. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Clint. It was awesome. And uh, thank you also you for your great work.
1: Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.